Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We are back. Thank you for everybody's patience during the hiatus. Thank you for all the well wishes. Dealing with a bunch of personal, personal Michigas, but very glad to be back on the horse. Today's guest, I'm really happy and excited about this, is the author of a book that's very fascinating to me. It's called PG versus MoCo, a memoir of high school football in the shadow of the nation's capital. And it's a book about the football traditions of Prince George's and Montgomery County, Maryland. Since this is where I live, and since this is where I have worked, I find this very interesting. And my goal for this podcast is for you to find it interesting too. Let's see if we can make that happen. Succeed or fail, that is the mission. I also have some choice words about five years since Kaepernick. But first, let's talk to the author of PG versus MoCo, a memoir of high school football in the shadow of the nation's capital. His name is Devin Ashby. Let's get him on the line. All right, first of all, Devin Ashby, uh, the author of PG versus MoCo, a memoir of high school football in the shadow of the nation's capital. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I mean, Devin, before I ask what compelled you to write this, and I want to also learn a little bit about you and who you are and your journey towards writing this terrific book, we really have to bring in our listeners first who might not know or care about the topic, you know, a topic that I know and care about, and I obviously you know and care about. So for the folks out there listening around the world, how would you explain in a sentence, what, what is Montgomery County? What comes to mind? So it's one of the most affluent counties, not just in the state of Maryland, but the entire country in terms of like the education system, in terms of just some of the people that have come from this area, you know, and it, it's just, it's somewhere I've kind of spent my entire life. Like I've, I haven't really known too much outside of this area. Mm. And please do the same for Prince George's County. Richest black county in the country. Um, off the bat, that's the first thing. And then, again, another place where a lot of affluent people, athletes, entertainers, you know, depending on what you think of politicians, a few of them have come from here. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's about the same thing. You know, when, when I worked in Prince George's County, I worked for a Black-owned newspaper called the PG Post. And one of the people said to me that, Prince George's County, my, my boss, old boss said this to me, the Prince George's County is the first municipality in the history of the United States that went from majority white to majority black while in the process becoming better educated and wealthier. Oh, wow. I didn't even I didn't even know that. I mean, I don't even know if it's true, frankly, but but it kind of tracks <laughs> if you think about it, because. The history of Prince George's County was, you know, white people who couldn't afford to live in Montgomery County. And then it became uh, a real spot of sort of black middle class migration. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah. No, I remember um, I was I don't know if you were familiar, but when Kevin Durant's documentary, Something in the Water came out. Mm hmm. I learned that a lot of, like you said, a lot of middle class black families moved up there like right around the early 70s and 60s kind of to get out of like it was 
kind of in the midst of when Martin Luther King was assassinated and the riots were going on in Washington, D.C., a lot of middle class and like somewhat upper class black folks moved out of the city and tried to flee to the suburbs. And that was kind of part of what ushered it in. And of course, we should be very clear as we talk about this, that there are, are very impoverished parts of both Montgomery County and Prince George's County. But I think one of the points of the book is that, you know, it takes stability to have successful football, some form of stability. You know, you got to have leagues, you got to have equipment, you got to have coaches. And that's something both Prince George's and Montgomery County have in no short supply. Would you agree with that? Yes, I do. Yeah. Especially as somebody who's kind of come up in that system. I've seen it firsthand. So. Well, well, actually, that's my next question, because get, before I ask you more about the book and I want to, you know, some compare and contrast more of Montgomery and Prince George's. Tell us the Devin Ashby story, if you don't mind. Like where where are you from Montgomery or Prince George's? Where did you go to high school? Where did you go to college? What compelled you to write this book? Got it. OK, so basically Devin Ashby born and raised in the Montgomery County area. You know, and I say it like that because I moved around a lot as a kid. Like I was born in Holy Cross Hospital in Silver Spring, spent the majority of the first part of my life in Wheaton, moved around with my mom to Rockville, to Shady Grove, Gaithersburg, and then ended up in Germantown in my high school years. Mm. So like I'm really from the like I've seen most of the area, like I'm pretty familiar with most of it. And um when i got to i started football a little bit later than most kids like a lot of kids kind of play little league when they are like before they turn 10 and they you know back in before it was a big deal about starting kids too early mm-hmm. and um but i started once i got in middle school i was kind of late to the party and really fell in love with the game kind of quickly and then i got to high school um, I went to Seneca Valley, which is the most decorated public school in the state of Maryland. Um, what do you mean decorated? They have the most state championships as uh, of right now. You know, um, Damascus is right behind them, but and they probably figure to pass them in the next few years if they keep up what they've been doing. But, I, you know, I went there and they, you know, I saw how serious they take it. You know, you go in the weight room and you see all of the records up on the wall, all of the people who've come through the school like their pictures are hanging up and they got plaques and how serious a lot of the guys who graduated still take it when they come back and talk to us during the off season or will be on the sidelines during games and like just that whole Friday night atmosphere is just something I had never been exposed to before obviously you know so it was all like at some point I always dreamed of like wearing green and gold and starting on varsity and that just never did come to pass for a number of reasons, but mainly just I wasn't there athletically. But um, when I graduated, I wanted to stay around football somehow. So I figured the best way to do that was to major in journalism when I got to college. So I ended up at Morgan State University out in Baltimore, uh, historically black college, mm-hmm. and learned a lot of things from the people there and kind of learned how to interview, learned how to write journalistic stories and, you know, use that. I was able to intern at New York Times. I was able to write for ESPN a little bit. And I used all of that combined experience 
to put this book together and it was always like I always wanted to write a book but it was just a matter of finding the time to do it so granted it's not under the best circumstances but when COVID-19 kind of shut everything down Mm -hmm. um everybody was like wondering okay what's next like sports were kind of at a standstill but then the NFL draft was going on and I remember because I'm a hometown team guy so I root for Washington football team Mm-hmm. So when they took Chase Young number two, I believe that was history for this state because that was the highest anybody from the state of Maryland had been drafted. Like, I don't think we'd ever had a top five pick up until Chase Young or it was like the first one in like 30 years or something, something like that. And then I noticed this particular 2020 in particular seemed to have a whole lot of guys from D.C., Maryland and like Northern Virginia. And when I did the math, I was like, if the three, the DMV, which is what we call it, if we combined it into one state, we would have had the third most draft picks behind Texas and California as a state. So, so Florida. Yeah, like more than Florida, too. That's amazing. Why, why, why do we not get the, I mean, people talk about, make documentaries about Texas football, obviously, Florida football, uh, Southern Cal, definitely. Why do you think the DMV doesn't get the recognition and credit of these other states? I have wondered that for the longest. And I think one of the main conclusions I've come to, just based off of some of the coaches I've interviewed, more more so than anybody, is one coach in particular, uh, Ronnie Crump from Potomac, made this point to me. Texas, Florida, and California are very public school oriented. Like their biggest and most dominant schools are public and it's almost sacrilegious to go to private school out there. Mm. Whereas in Maryland, you look at DeMatha, Good Counsel, um, Archbishop, I forgot the name of that one, but though our best schools or the most visible ones are private. So it kind of is the flip, even though we do have schools like Wise and Damascus and um, schools like that that have, and Quince Orchard that have um, kind of recently gotten more visible, but like the Matha and Good Council far and away take up most of the attention here. So I think that's part of it. And then the other thing is our, our, our talent doesn't stay home. We always are going out to schools in Texas and yeah. Florida and California. <laughs> so that is also like, you know, as good as those areas are producing their homegrown talent, most of their talent stays home. And that gets, I guess, to, I mean, this was a question I had down the line, but I, I wanted to ask you, like, did, when you talk to these coaches, um, it, it almost doesn't make sense why we don't have, like, a kick-ass college football operation in this area. Right. I mean, why hasn't, like, the University of Maryland been successful at keeping some of this talent? I mean... Even even like if we want to go full DMV, like why why isn't you know schools that have traditionally been decent, like I think of places like Virginia Tech or Virginia, mm-hmm. like yeah. why these play you know because Hampton Roads is just a a wealth of talent, the seven five seven too, right? Like why haven't these places been able to keep the talent? Why has the pipeline always taken players out of state? Um, well, I can't speak for Virginia too much, even though I do eventually want to dive into that, but. For Maryland, I just know University of Maryland generally is 
one of the few options that football players in this area have if they want to get some national recognition, if they want to get TV time, things like that. And Maryland has had a number of issues in terms of like some of the recruits I talked to, like one of the main ones I talked to, Gaston Cooper, who was a quarterback at Paint Branch in the 2010s, like the early 2010s. He told me there was a period of time where they weren't even looking at their own talent in-house. And like they they just weren't recruiting hometown guys. They just were overlooking them for whatever reason. And I don't know if it was the fact that the guys didn't have roots from here or not, but that's one thing. And then secondly, yeah, Maryland, this area doesn't have a whole lot of options. Like, you know, you go to Texas and you have the Longhorns, you have Baylor, you have A&M, you have University of Houston, you have um, TCU. I mean, you you just got a whole bunch of different options and that's just the D1 level. So you get that Maryland kind of, you have the University of Maryland and then after that, it's not a whole, whole lot. Like you have Bowie State at the D2 level, which has done an amazing job keeping their talent at home. Mm. And then you have Morgan State, which where I went, which they generally have, they've struggled in the past with keeping talent at home unless like they're from Baltimore. So it's a number of things, but the main thing is just a lack of resources from what I've seen. Mm. So I did, I should have asked you this from the, from the get up, but just so our, our folks who are more unfamiliar, who are some of the great players that come to your mind when you think of the, of Maryland talent? Um, the biggest one is Joe Hayden. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he plays for the Steelers now. A lot of people don't know that he was one of the top quarterbacks in the nation as a high school football player. You know, like a lot of people know him as a as a great defensive back now, but he was originally a quarterback. He was kind of and before and I think he was ahead of his time because he was only five seven and he was he had wheels. He was mobile and he could he was a dual threat quarterback. And I guess at the time that he came up it still was kind of a new thing. Like, I mean, we had just seen Michael Vick and that kind of around that time had started to fizzle out for more reasons than just on the field. And then it was right before we saw like Cam Newton. It was right before Robert Griffin. It was right before Kaepernick and Russell Wilson and all these guys. So that's him. Um, Sean Merriman came out of Maryland. He went to Frederick Douglass High School in Upper Marlboro. And I actually spoke to his head coach to put that story together. Um, Marcus Allen, who I don't know if a ton of people know about him, but he was one of the top safeties. He went to Penn State and he actually became, for those who remember Penn State versus Ohio State in 20, I want to say 15 or 16, when there was the block kick and um, Grant Haley picked it up and ran it all the way back. Marcus Allen was the one that blocked the kick. Mm. So he, he he became famous in Penn State history for that. And he ended up going, he's with the Steelers now. Um, Jake Funk is a recent one. He just came out. He was like, he set the Maryland State record for rushing touchdowns. He had like almost 60 in a season playing for Damascus. He just got drafted by the Rams. Um, we had Navarro Bowman, who was like, he could potentially become a Hall of Famer, depending on a lot of things. But he went to Suitland High School which always had a reputation as like a really like rough and tough school. And he went to Penn State and just, you know, he did some amazing things next to Patrick Willis. 
So, you know, different guys like that. We had Stefan Diggs. We had Chase Young. Um, Brian Westbrook, Cameron Wake, uh, the Fuller brothers, Kendall and Kyle Fuller, mm-hmm. and Vincent Fuller as well. Um, so it's it's just so many. I'm probably forgetting some, but it, it's so many. No, that's helpful. Um, do you think the greatness of our local basketball scene has overshadowed what we've done in football? And uh, do you think that's one of the reasons why you for you know you needed to even write a book like this because of uh, it being under discussed? Yeah, I absolutely think so. Um, and it's even funnier. Because even with our basketball, I think a lot of people don't realize, like when I talk to friends from other states and areas who aren't familiar from here, or aren't familiar with this area, they don't even really recognize our basketball town, even though we're like the top (laughs) basketball producing region. And people still don't even recognize it. So even with that being said, basketball does overshadow it, but it's still... I think this area in general is just overlooked athletically. And um, it's just that basketball has been getting more love because you get guys like Kevin Durant. You had Len Bias, who should have been a bigger deal if he would have you know, been able to live and see his things come to fruition. You have those guys and that they've put more resources towards basketball, I think, as well. Like, especially PG County because of a lot of the factors that they put more resources towards basketball, but basketball definitely has overshadowed the football here, which is why I felt the need to write this because I just, I follow a lot of people who are from the area just because, you know, I have friends in college, friends in high school, you know, who people have been begging for somebody to tell the story of football in this area because basketball has gotten a number of, stories being told whether it's at the national level or not i had never seen anybody even attempt to do it in football which is why i'm like i might as well i got this degree nobody's done it yet even if i don't really get the recognition for it i'd like to be able to say i was one of the first to do it no that that uh, that's exactly right um so let's get to the to the heart like what um which is the superior county and why? <laughs> um, I'm from Moco, but I have to go with PG. Mm. What gives PG the edge? And when I say what gives PG the edge, I'm not talking about coaches or individual players. I mean, what is it culturally in Prince George's County that has allowed them to produce better football? I think some of it is the economic factors i think which is the case with a lot of areas that produce a lot of really and i hate to put it like that but like you said there are some areas like as as much pg has gotten way more love in recent years for being oh you know the wealthiest black county you know people talk about it that way but there are parts of it that are struggling economically just like any other area you know and same with mocha but in pg you know, sometimes those type of conditions force people to really, you know, like football and basketball and whatever sports you can think of become a way out, you know. And mm-hmm. so there are a lot of kids who they they just 
the environments and conditions they've been raised in, football has been an outlet for them to express their emotions, to express like frustration, channel their frustration, anger, and more importantly, to keep them out of situations that could end them either in prison or dead. So, and I found that out just through my interviews. Like some of the people I've interviewed, like one of my favorite stories was Darius Victor, who, you know, he spent some time in the NFL. He went to the XFL before it folded. He's a guy who his family was from Liberia. He was born in a refugee camp and he came over here, settled in the Hyattsville area. And, you know, they weren't very rich growing up. You know, his brother was killed in a rob a failed robbery attempt. Um, and he used all of that stuff to really kind of channel and he used football as a way to kind of keep himself together and channel his emotions and use that as a way to kind of motivate him and get him to a place where he could just, you know, help his family out. And I've seen a lot of stories like that. Um, Suitland was another one. Like it used to be a very difficult area and there were a lot of things. And so a lot of those coaches use football to save these kids from a lot of like very just troubling circumstances. So I think the main thing that PG breeds is it, it gets, it's a different level of toughness out there. Mm. And you know, that, that reminds me of a lot of what I've heard when I've asked the question about what is it about parts of Texas? What is it about parts of Florida? Um, you know, it, it seems like, like the, the hard scrabble nature of football doesn't exactly have a country club pipeline if you catch my drift. Right. Exactly. That's just the way it is. Um, so you've been great at like answering all this stuff. Like what, what has the reaction? I'm really curious, like in Montgomery County, in Prince George's County, I know the book is, is new, but have you been able to get it out there, get it into people's hands, been able to have some of these conversations with folks? coaches what's been the reaction to the book so it's it's kind of mixed so like when i first put it out it was it was definitely like it was hot like a lot of people mainly friends and family and the people i interviewed were really just pushing it hard so like the first i published it in october of 2020 after like taking about five to six months to put it together and it was just, it was hot. It was coming off the shelves and stuff. But now it, it's kind of slowed down recently. So I've been trying to kind of push it again. But it has been a lot of people who have supported it, which is what I figured would be the case because so many people were excited that somebody was taking the time to do this. And there also were people who, like, mainly from D.C. because I didn't feature D.C. in there who were like, oh, you know, what about all the DC legends, which is a whole book by itself, I found out, like, just from my research, because initially, I was going to make it the entire DMV, like DC, Maryland, and the part of Virginia that's recognized culturally as the DMV. But it, it would have been too much. Like, I was looking at DC alone, and DC got a whole separate history on it by itself of football talent that wouldn't do it justice by just squeezing it into like one or two chapters so you have dc people that were wanting to see where their love was you had you know there were certain schools within maryland that i didn't even include that some of those people were like oh you know what's going on and then so like it was just the process of putting it together was kind of difficult at first but like i 
use the help of like some of my friends and some mentors to kind of just figure out you don't have to hit a home run with one book you know you can put multiple books together and write multiple books so i kind of found the chapters that fit and just went from there wow that, that's the way that you got to do it no doubt about it um well you've been so generous with your time Devin. before you go i do have to ask you uh just a couple other things first and foremost is there anything we're not talking about with regards to your book that you want to make clear for the listeners? Um, I think definitely I specifically wanted this book to focus on public schools. So when people read it and wonder why there's no mention of Good Counsel or DeMatha or the other great public school, private schools we've had in this area, my thing was that I was inspired mainly by Kevin Durant because his documentary almost exclusively focused on his buddies from private school mm. and made no mention of how talented public school, in his case, basketball was in this state. I didn't want to make that mistake because I feel like the pub private schools get enough love from the ESPN 100 lists and mm -hmm. all of the just national outlets that focus so my thing is i want to focus on the nitty-gritty like the the foundation of football in this state and that's how i settled on pg and mo county in particular because their public schools have such a great reputation in this state like in terms of winning and what they did and then there were other counties in this area like frederick county that have very strong football tradition as well so, I mean, Maryland, my main thing in saying all this is I think Maryland and D.C. as well deserve way more respect at the national level for the football talent we've produced for other states, really. <laughs> exactly. You know, so, yeah. Well, I hope you send a copy of the book to 35 Ventures, uh, Kevin Dance, uh Business Company, so they, they, they have a copy of it there. Because yeah, I think like, it creates a great bookend to the to that kind of work that he's trying to do. And, and you know, respect to Durant for trying to raise awareness of what we've got going on here. But I agree with you that it did not take in the totality of the student population in this area. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, no problem. No problem. <laughs> and just one last question for you, Devin. We ask this of everybody who comes on the show. Uh, what kind of music are you listening to these days? Specifically, what kind of music were you listening to when you were putting this book out? Um, so I kind of get my music from everywhere. I like old and new. So, I mean, big rap and hip hop fan. Um, but I also love dance hall. I love, you know, reggaeton, Latin trap, you know. So I, I kind of get my inspiration from all over the place. Damn, interesting. Reggaeton. That's what uh, I'm sort of a fan of reggaeton, whether I want to be or not, because it's always playing outside my house at uh, interesting hours of the evening. Right, right. <laughs> so I've just decided to like it. <laughs> awesome. Well, Devin Ashby, you know, the, the, the book for everybody out there, I can't recommend it highly enough, whether you're from this area or not. It's called PG versus MoCo, a memoir of high school football in the shadow of the nation's capital. The author is Devin Ashby. Devin, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. And also, it's available on Amazon for anybody wondering. Yes. Yes, it is. 
Uh, just search it up. Devin, that's D-E-V-O-N. Ashley. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the fifth anniversary of that moment, that fateful moment when Colin Kaepernick refused to stand for the national anthem. People don't realize that when Colin made that decision, it was before a little noticed preseason game in August. Kaepernick wasn't even starting. He took his seat behind the bench to cause as little uproar as possible. The act might have gone unnoticed if not for an intrepid reporter by the name of Steve Weish who saw what was happening and understood its significance. The gesture, which at the time, remember, was not taking a knee, it was just sitting on a bench, was a reaction to the rash of police killings that had taken place over that summer, including those of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. Kaepernick sat in disgust over the gap between what this country's anthem promises and the lived realities of black people in the United States. No one could have predicted the firestorm that would follow. Countless people around the world were inspired. Others sent death threats. The right-wing backlash culminated with the President of the United States with his racist instincts on high alert, treating Kaepernick as his own personal punching bag. And it didn't stop there. There was the blackballing from the NFL, the Nike ad, the burning of Nike products, the efforts by the NFL to co-opt Kaepernick's message while denying him work, the much-discussed juxtaposition of Colin taking that knee and Derek Chauvin taking a knee to murder George Floyd. It's been a lot. But I want to argue that the media's focus on Kaepernick misses what his legacy actually is. What Colin Kaepernick has provided over the last five years has been a language and method of resistance for young athletes to follow. Literally thousands of athletes in small towns and big cities across the country put his example into practice in their own communities. All of a sudden, the playing field was a contested political space, a site not of escape, but protest. The anthem became an opportunity to express dissent. The idea of being in that overused phrase, an activist athlete, became the new reality for countless teenagers. Young people have often been painted as apathetic. Young athletes are often seen in the culture as not only apathetic, but downright reactionary. For most athletes, play was an end in and of itself. Yet after Kaepernick took his knee, many of these same athletes were transformed. Yes, other athletes had protested on the field. We saw it in the WNBA over that same summer of 2016. But the combination of the media power of the NFL and the use of the anthem as a space for protest was a game changer. 
these young athletes began to understand their own cultural capital in their communities and were willing to exercise it in order to start uncomfortable conversations about racism and police violence. Now I have a book about to drop called The Kaepernick Effect, in which I interviewed dozens upon dozens of these young athletes. And what I found is that they didn't take a knee during the anthem to support or mimic Kaepernick and his efforts to get back into the league. They didn't do it to follow a trend. If anything, as high school students, they were putting themselves out there to be bullied, mocked, and even threatened with losing their spot on the team, not to mention violence. But still, they took that knee. They did it because they, like so many other people across this country, are fed up with white supremacy and police violence. You cannot understand why 2020's police murder of Floyd caused some of the largest protests in the history of the United States without understanding the righteous impatience of these young people. You cannot understand why 2021 has seen this conjoined political backlash against anti-racist teaching and black people voting without understanding that at its root is a fear of a generation more diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any other in U.S. history. If there was a name that was uttered by the people I interviewed, whether they were from Seattle, Washington or Beaumont, Texas, it wasn't Colin Kaepernick, it was Trayvon Martin. If you are 19 years old today, then Trayvon Martin was murdered by George Zimmerman when you were 10. To see his murder and then see Zimmerman get off scot-free was an all-American trauma for an entire generation. In a previous decade, the child whose slaying helped provoke a revolt in the name of black freedom was named Emmett Till. For the young athletes with whom I spoke, it was Trayvon. The road that was traveled from Kaepernick's taking that knee to the mass protests of 2020 was in part constructed by these young people. While so much of the sports media has been obsessed with Kaepernick's every utterance and is waiting for him to speak as if he were some combination of Muhammad Ali and Godot, the fact of the matter is that they've gotten the story exactly wrong. It's not about Kaepernick. Maybe it was never about Kaepernick. It's about the people who adopted the method and language of his protest, taking it away from the bright lights and cameras and bringing it home. It's their voices we should be listening to. To ignore them is to ignore the prospect for change in a world ridden with racism, disease, and constant crisis. That's the true Kaepernick effect. The mass movement to make people uncomfortable enough to surrender their blindness and see what this country has always been and also what it is the capacity to become. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast.
Well, now is usually the part of the show where we play Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down, where I give awards to the people who have just stood up in the sports world and those who truly need to sit down. The Just Stand Up Award this week Stand up. goes to... Chicago's own CM Punk, the return of my favorite pro wrestler to the ring. I mean, let's play a clip of what the crowd sounded like at the United Center on Friday night. CM Punk. See, I don't think Michael Jordan ever got a pop that loud at the United Center. That's one of the craziest things I have ever heard. CM Punk, it stands for Chicago Made Punk, and the relationship between CM Punk and Chicago might be like nothing else in the entire popular culture. And to have CM Punk not only come back, but also take the vile WWE to the woodshed in his comments, was just like the sweetest, sweetest music to my ears. So Just Stand Up Award goes to you, CM Punk. Stand up! The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, Sit Your Ass Down. Sit your ass down! Hilariously goes to any WWE wrestler who's trying to make CM Punk sound like, yeah, he's not that big a star, yeah, he can't really draw. You know, and people are like, oh, that's just kayfabe. In other words, that's like fake words that WWE is saying in order to build heat and evoke a reaction. But I really do think the WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, they never understood what they had in CM Punk. They never got it, even though it was right there in front of their faces. And they've never understood that wrestling, God forbid, should be a form of entertainment and a form of joy. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to my guest, Devin Ashby. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigaboo. Everybody out there, if you want to be in touch, if you have any questions about the show, you can always hit me up on Twitter at Edge of Sports, or you can email me, Dave Zirin, at edgeofsports at gmail.com. Please, please, please check out my new book. It drops September 14th. It's called The Kaepernick Effect. Pre-order that bad boy. Please check it out. For everybody out there listening, mask up, be safe, stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.